0: In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart, too? Now, printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart.
1: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Andy Warhol's images of Campbell's soup cans and Brillo boxes upset the distinction between advertising and art. His prints of Marilyn and Liza raised questions about the relationship between celebrity culture, commerce, and artistic expression. Warhol was an openly gay man before Stonewall, and his New York studio was a place where artists, drug addicts, and celebrities came to party, crash, and play a role in one of Warhol's experimental, often sexually explicit, films. In 1968, Warhol was shot by Valerie Solanas, who had appeared in two of his films, After the shooting and until his death in 1987, Warhol kept to a tight circle of friends and family and relied heavily on Vincent Fremont, his exclusive sales agent, and Fred Hughes, his business manager. My guest today is Eric Shiner, director of the Andy Warhol Museum. When Shiner began his work at the museum 20 years ago, he had a much
2: different job. I interned at the Warhol Museum the year that we opened in 1994 as an intern in the curatorial department. So and twenty
1: years ago, that was you, you had a
2: contact with exactly a connection and with that. that's where I started, and then I jumped off to Asia and always did Asian art through the lens of Warhol and pop art. And then, after working many years here in New York in that field specifically, I got a call out of the blue to go be the curator at the Warhol Museum back home in Pittsburgh.
1: You you would interned when the museum first opened, mm-hmm. and I want to go to that point because I'm interested in uh, Warhol died what year? In 1987. So he died seven years earlier. Mm -hmm. He'd been shot in 68, Mm -hmm. same year as uh, RFK. That's right. Uh, What transpires after Warhol's death? Was there a plan when Warhol was alive to build this
2: institution, or did it all come to fruition after he was gone? There was no decided plan. It had been a conversation point, and certainly people had talked to Andy about The idea of one day having a museum, which he liked that idea, but there was nothing definitive about it whatsoever. Andy's will was incredibly basic, and it said that he wanted his estate to support art and artists, and that was all that it said. And
1: so, uh, who were the catalysts behind building the museum? I mean, it must have, those things
2: cost a lot of dough. There are a lot of urban legends that say that several New York museums were approached to partner to have the Andy Warhol Museum based here in New York City. But it's very important to remember that in the late 1980s, Warhol's reputation was about as low as it could possibly go. As the result of? As the result of most of his exhibitions throughout the 1980s receiving horrid reviews in the art press. So a lot of institutions here really questioned the sustainability of Andy Warhol as an artist and really asked if he would even deserve his own museum. Do you think that Warhol in that period was doing something different than Warhol had done or was
1: he just being
2: Andy re-braced? was an innovator in all things and was constantly trying new ways of making art through new mediums, through new subject matter, new color palettes. He was always trying to stay ahead of the curve. And that often affected him negatively in that sometimes the work that he was doing was too fresh, it was too current, it was too of the moment. For example. For example, the dollar sign paintings, and thinking about what that year, 1981, is the two hundred dollar
1: bill paintings in that
2: two hundred one dollar bills was his very first silkscreen painting. Exactly. So that's an early 1960s work, 1962. So
1: he was being dismissed for that
2: he was and um, you know a lot of people said that it was too tacky to paint money it was too gauche and (laughs) when we look at those paintings today what's more indicative of the early 1980s in New York than the almighty dollar he hit it square on the head but Andy loved money. I mean, that was one of his driving forces, and he drew and painted money really throughout his entire career. when you d-
1: say he loved money, not just his art, but loved money in terms of his own wealth. Oh, absolutely. But he became that way. He did not monetize well in the 60s, and he stopped painting. What year? When did he stop painting Well, that he went into his filmmaking period?
2: 1964 is when he really shifts focus to the film Making, um, he starts experimenting in 1963. In 64, declares that he's going to be a filmmaker, and yet never stops fully painting or fully oh. making art. He was always making something, but he definitely put the the onus of his focus on film in 1964.
1: And then he comes back to painting. Not that he really ever left, mm-hmm. but he he shifts back again, concentrating more on painting. When.
2: Early 1970s is when he really goes back to it. The shooting has a lot to do with that. I was going to ask you. As yeah. well. When he starts to rethink his life in that he does quite literally die um, as a result of the shooting. He's miraculously brought back to life after hours and hours of surgery. How did he surgery. change after the shooting? Because I think to myself,
1: is that one he decided he wanted to? I, I don't say this in a vulgar sense. Yeah. Warhol really shifts the whole Warhol Incorporated into fifth gear mm-hmm. after he's fully recovered from the shooting. Absolutely. Was that a deliberate thing? He thought, we only live so long.
2: Right. It was a huge wake-up call, and he really did start to think about business in a much more serious way. Immortality. Immortality. He'd certainly been— somewhat lackadaisical in business records and dealings prior to the shooting. But after that, he brings on Fred and Vincent to help run the business as they know what they're doing. And they really pull a lot of order into his life. And I think it's also important to think that post-shooting, he becomes much more insular and much more protected. So we all know about the Parties at the factory. Sure. It was, that ends at that period. It ends one hundred. Fred and everybody.
1: We shed a. He sheds a skin.
2: He does. He's Fred still gets is out s- him
1: to shed a skin.
2: Social in ways, but he doesn't allow many people in, and security and safety have a lot to do with that.
1: When I think of Warhol, he seemed um, not on the surface, but underneath, very jaded and very cynical, and very playful and very boyish and very. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guileless at the same time with this tremendous yin and yang in him. Mm-hmm. Is that an accurate portrayal?
2: That's 100% accurate. You hit it directly on the head. And, and who did he and, trust? His trust was probably very difficult to get, real trust. He trusted his family 100%. Stayed in regular contact with his brothers back in Pittsburgh with weekly telephone calls. They were the rock, um, certainly. How many brothers? Two brothers. What did they do? Paul and John. Paul was in the scrap metal recycling business, and Paul just died about a year and a half ago at the age of 91. Um, the first to come in, the first if to Warhol go. If Warhol were alive now, how old would he be? Um, Andy would be, let's see, 87 this August.
1: Wouldn't it be great to have an 87-year-old Warhol around?
2: It would be. Giving Could you imagine? His it's always well, interesting to would you love to be to on the phone about.
1: gossiping with an 87-year-old Warhol? Oh, he loved to gossip. Was, exactly. Of course, he was a great was gossip Meister.
2: Indeed. So, um, and the other brother was... And
1: the other brother was who?
2: John. And John was a businessman and a salesman and was very much Andy's confidant in so many ways.
1: Was fame itself changing? Because he's photographing fame. Hmm. Did fame have to become different?
2: It's such an interesting thing to think about because in so many ways, Warhol becomes famous because of his depiction of fame. So he is really linking himself to the very concept of fame and to the celebrities that drive the fame machine. Certainly when you think about what fame meant across America in the late 1950s, early nineteen sixties, how would you characterize it? It's a very different universe. It's a much more private world. Celebrities are certainly famous for their acting, for their personas, their singing, but a talent. And that's the world of press that puts that out is a completely different media universe the media, media is landscape is completely but changing them and certainly changing but when you think about it it relies so much on press and print and visual images visual images in the newspaper mm. or in a gossip magazines ride. are huge huge Life magazine is no the all be all no internet and Warhol realizes that not only do people like Marilyn and Liz become famous through that media Angle, but so do artists, and he's looking very carefully at and how— And where
1: is the art in fame? Well— He asks himself, I think, so because where is the where art here?
2: And he knows that Jackson Pollock and a few other abstract expressionist painters who have been um, featured in Life magazine and other mainstream media sources are household names and famous. And that's what he wants more than anything, not only to be respected as an artist, to, to be known as an artist, which is really— one of the major driving forces in his life.
1: I think that, um, you know, television obviously is coming Mm -hmm. into its own in the early 60s. TV engaging with someone's imagery. It's not just a, a voice coming out of the radio. And to me, Warhol represents someone who starts that process in modern life of taking famous people and saying they're here to be consumed by you like a product.
2: Exactly, and that's why he does what he does because he realizes that celebrities are a consumer product, a product just like buying the Campbell's soup can, right. just like buying Brillo they're boxes a part of our lives or Heinz,
1: like air and water
2: that we need to survive in ways, and yet. Um, We can certainly live without them, but we need to have them in our lives, and we buy them, because you do buy those gossip rags. You buy into something.
1: Well, well, obviously, we've we've evolved to that. We take the television and pair it with what Warhol is doing. Mm -hmm. Certain people who shall remain nameless, they have a debt of gratitude they owe to
2: Warhol. Absolutely, and when you think about his front and center depiction of fame and consumer products there's also another side of the coin that has to be factored in which also plays directly into this and it's about death and disaster it's about his car crashes it's about his suicides it's about mortality and Andy was very keen and very aware of the fact that when we buy gossip rags when we watch television the two poles tend to be glamour wealth and fame on one side Death, disaster on the other, and we can't Where none of us can go and where all of us will go. That's exactly right. Characterize for me, in terms of
1: his friendships and how he behaved, um, more specifically, if you can, if you're willing to, how his life changed after the shooting.
2: He immediately believes, first off, that Valerie Solanus is going to come back and finish the job.
1: And why was she only given three years in prison? Why?
2: It's incredible. I just read a book about her, a right. biography, and it's really, really insightful. Um, Valerie gave Andy a script, and it was a play-slash-potential film that she'd written called Up Your Ass. And she gave it to Andy, hoping that he would produce it either as a stage play or as a film.
1: Now, for people that don't know this, she, they knew each
2: other. They did know each other. Um, not— she was an habitué well. of his. Yes, little she was one salon. of the factory chicks. hangout chicks. She w- appeared in one of Andy's films in a very she was around um, background role. Yes, she was around, but a B player, a B maybe a C, C player. And <laughs> Valerie had a lot of really deep, dark, horrible things that had happened to her in her life, and it created a lot of psychosis, and she was not stable in any sense. And yet, she was incredibly smart and was a, a feminist who wanted to eradicate men from the world. That's what the play was about. She started a one-woman um, group called um, Scum, the Society for Cutting Up Men, and wanted to eradicate men from the earth. I think that Andy, being a man, probably didn't like that idea so much. Right. And he, when he read the script, he just thought it was not worth a conversation. Can, can
1: you think of anything that Warhol exhibited toward women? What did Warhol do, do you think, that might have provoked her, if anything? Well, was he, he very control?
2: simply said, Valerie, I'm not doing this. I don't like it. It's, it's not simple. any good. Right. And then he lost the script and didn't return it to her. She thought he was going to steal it from her, take oh, the see. credit, yeah. and she went to get it that day. And when he couldn't produce it, boom.
1: Did she always go on her rounds collecting her um, scripts with a gun on her?
2: No, absolutely not. She purchased the gun just either the day or oh, two I'm days before. Oh, i glad you told me that in
1: case somebody comes to pick up any scripts for me at my apartment building. I want to be You should
2: watch out. Get a metal detector. Yeah. But, no, she, she had came, it out for him, and she really thought that Warhol was controlling her life. Right. She was psychotic she was enough right. that she thought— Is she, she still thought, alive? Um, no. Valerie died um, in the late 1980s. Right.
1: And she only got three years. Did anybody, to anyone's satisfaction, find out why?
2: Um, It was, you know, a case of um, her psychiatric status because she was deemed um, insane and went to a A mental um, facility. facility. She didn't go to prison. She didn't go to prison. She went to a mental facility. And somehow—
1: And the standards are a little more lax there. Much
2: more lax. And because he didn't die, um, she didn't have a murder rap.
1: And was there ever, ever— even the most remote intersection of them again.
2: Well, she did reach out. Um, she would call the factory occasionally.
1: After she was instructed not to do
2: Exactly. So. And Fred and Bridget and anyone who would answer the phone would just have to say, never call here again, Valerie. But
1: yeah.
2: periodically she would. She eventually made her way to San Francisco and died there penniless and um, addicted. So it's a very sad life that she led.
1: This is the I Shot Andy Warhol Suite, written by John Cale for the movie I Shot Andy Warhol. Valerie Solanas was played by Lily Taylor. Take a listen to the Here's the Thing archives, where I spoke with artist Eric Fischl about his own dreams regarding art and commerce.
3: I used to have this fantasy that um, when my muse left me, I would still be able to make product. Right, that, I, that, I, that I, I wouldn't be making art anymore, but I'd be making things that look like art, and that that was okay. Take a listen at heresthething.org.
1: Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now there's 15% off at
3: cariuma.com/alec Bits.
1: My guest today is Eric Schiner, director of the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. Warhol's work has inspired countless artists and filmmakers. One of Warhol's own influences was Marcel Duchamp, best known for his porcelain urinal titled, fountain.
2: Duchamp was by far and away his favorite artist. And they Duchamp
1: favored a uh Warhol. Oh, absolutely. Liked his work. Yeah.
2: They met, they um, became friends in the 1960s. Um, Duchamp is in several Warhol screen tests, for example, and they had a very interesting back and forth about the ready-made, about taking something literally off a grocery store shelf and turning it into art. And most concepts of Warhol's find their Foundation in a Duchampian aesthetic, one hundred percent.
1: People mentioned either that Warhol painted the soup cans in the different flavors was one side of the corner, the other. Either because his mother made him the soup all the time and he liked the soup, or his mother made him the soup all the time and he hated the soup. Which was it? Oh, he
2: loved the soup. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And she really (laughs) did serve it to him every day. And we have (laughs) at the museum in our collection what, if one wanted it to be, could be the Rosetta Stone of Warhol. And that is a drawing that Julia, his mother, made in 1953 of two Campbell's soup cans and two cats. And in her amazing Cyrillic script, it says, Campbell's soup, very good, (laughs) G-U-T. So she beats him to the punch by nine years in this drawing and depicting Campbell's soup. And we know that Andy knew about this drawing because he kept it.
1: So Andy's paintings are not just of Campbell's Soup. They're paintings of his mother's rendering. of It goes even more meta than that.
2: Everything goes back to Andy's mother. She was an artist. They were close. They were incredibly close. She was an artist. She was an artist. What kind of work did she do? Drawings of cats and angels. We have many up on display at the museum. She was incredibly talented. And she also, and this is really formative for Andy, makes sculptures um, in the form of little pots of flowers and she makes them out of tin cans and they just happen to be Campbell's soup cans. So she literally cuts the cans to make metal flowers and makes these arrangements and then she goes door to door in the rich neighborhoods of Pittsburgh, Squirrel Hill, Shadyside and sells these things door to door with the boys hiding in the bushes watching her so that she can make a little bit of extra money to make ends meet to help the family. So not only does Warhol have this artistic... Um, training from his mother he also has a very important economic training in that he sees that one can make money from art and certainly when he arrives here in new york and starts making cold calls immediately it's exactly what he saw his mother doing when he was a kid so incredibly important relationship and julia was so convinced that her little baby boy could not take care of himself here in the big city about 18 months after andy moves here um, he arrives in 1949. In early 1951, Julia makes the move and moves here to New York and moves in with Andy on his apart- um, to his apartment on Lexington.
1: And lived there for how long?
2: Until the end of her life. In Which was? Early 1970s. So she was ill. She went back to So Pittsburgh. she lived through his shooting? She did. She rushed to the hospital to be with him and take care of him. Uh. And sadly, she fell ill when she was visiting relatives back in Pittsburgh. And... Um, Died about six months after that. But they were incredibly close and collaborators. So throughout the entire 1950s, if you see any script on any Warhol drawing, any commercial work, whether it be a title or um, some sort of um, nomenclature referring to the subject or Warhol's signature, it's all Julia's hand. Warhol was the most
1: prolific and produced the most of his paintings and prints and so forth, during what
2: period? 1960 to 1987 is the the true period of his painting, but he does experiment with painting a while. in the 1950s. And, of course, it does have fits and starts in between. Would but,
1: you say that, that after the shooting he was even more
2: prolific? Absolutely.
1: So that's, that's the most prolific period, The most prolific period 70s. is the
2: mid-70s through the end of his life.
1: When you have a museum that is dedicated to one person's work, mm-hmm. Uh, i'm assuming people are giving you things to exhibit all the time and and how much of it do you own how much of warhol stuff do you guys have
2: we have the biggest collection of warhol in the world first off and how did also, you do that everything for the most part came directly from andy's studio and he'd been holding things back from every period every series why he was doing that, we have to question whether it was to hold it back so that one day it would be more valuable so that he could sell it for a lot more than when he made it in the 1960s, for example, or if he was thinking about there one day being a museum. And there are arguments on both sides of that equation. But um, I would say that we're in the 95% range in terms of what we have. We're really only missing about 10 prime examples of specific paintings from specific series. And those are the things that we have access to and can borrow from um, the owners. But and people are normally accommodating. For the most part, yes. To support the mission of Absolutely. Other. And those are the things that one day we hope those collectors will think about donating one day to the museum so that we have a full survey of his work. How would Warhol describe to people his
1: filmmaking career, which... To me is Warhol's films. I still have a trouble getting my hands around that and my head around that. That it's not kitsch, you know, and that, and To use that word, do you have an archive of his films, obviously? Do you screen we his do. films? There, we
2: have all of them. We actually own, you own all the of the films. How and, many are there? Oh, there are mi- literally a million feet of film, if not more.
1: And, and how and many were actually cut into actual, actually titled?
2: Probably about twelve dozen. If you look at a, a film in as much as there's some sort of an arc or a storyline, but not always. And then the screen tests, of which there are well north of 500 of his filmic portraits of people that he knew, beautiful people, and complete strangers, and everything in between. So Warhol's film is a complete treasure trove that is very untapped.
1: Uh, I mean, many people in the art world have... Um, I don't want to say reluctantly, but they've, they've come to an appreciation of where Warhol's place is in, in mm. contemporary art. Are there people in the film world who've done the same thing? Oh,
2: absolutely. And Andy is viewed as one of the earliest and most important avant-garde filmmakers here in New York, along with Jonas and with Jack Smith. So Jonas Mekas, Jack Smith, Andy Warhol, always viewed as the top three there at the very beginning. What's the
1: film you think that, is, that represents his work as a filmmaker best? Wow. What's the one thing? what, What do people who come to the museum? What? How do they respond? What film do they respond
2: to most? I think that Empire is the one that really gets people because it's a static shot of the Empire State Building for over eight hours, and Andy sets about making the most boring film ever made. And it was all about deconstructing the notion of cinematic narrative, of taking a storyline out entirely and focusing on one object. The only thing that happens is as it becomes dusk, the lights turn on. We recently realized that the lights on the Empire State Building were a very new thing in 1964 to celebrate the World's Fair, the year that it was filmed. And people think of it as a durational um, experience, When it came out, people challenged themselves to try to stay awake to watch the entire thing, and I don't know if anyone has ever done that. I actually, well, Blake Blake Gopnik, the um, art critic who's working on a Warhol book right now, has actually stayed awake for the entire thing, and he should be lauded for that. But it was just this idea of completely redefining what film was and could be, and I think because of that, um, Empire or Sleep, his two earliest films um, are important, but. Chelsea Girls is also a critical um, film for Andy Warhol in that it's this idea of voyeurism. It's the idea of being a fly on the wall at the Chelsea Hotel and seeing all of the strange denizens of that very um, odd and quirky environment and seeing the drama that unfolds there, room to room. And there's a script it's not really adhered to very closely and it in many ways becomes the emblematic symbol of New York in that very specific moment of time and I also think is the first iteration of what we know today as reality television Uh of being that voyeur that spy who has insight into a world that you otherwise wouldn't and I think we can safely blame Andy Warhol for reality television. You never met him did you? I never did.
1: You never met him? No. From what you gather from people who knew him what was he like on the most elemental level like when did he wake up in the morning, and what did he have for breakfast? And
2: uh, Not his sexuality, meaning mm-hmm. was he ever in love? Yeah, absolutely. Who he was, was he in love with? Describe him. Describe A typical Warhol. guy who would tend to wake up a little bit late, 10, 10.30, have breakfast. I love um, that. The crack would, of 10, he, you're up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He would call Pat Hackett, um, his assistant, or he would call Bridget, first thing, to gossip about what happened the night before. He would often call them the night before as well to gossip about what had just happened and then would remember the rest of it the next morning. But then he would go to work and he was an incredibly hard worker. He was working constantly. And he would tell his staff, his family, any mentees that he had, you have to work hard to be successful. This is not something that comes just because of your talent or your skill. You really have to work. And he was a workaholic. So, I would assume that he was working eight to ten hours a day, every day. On Sundays, for example, he His would studio go,
1: where he did his painting was where back then?
2: Well, it depends which His one. home was there on 49th? Four, his house was on 66th Street, 66th, between and Park Lex. and Madison. Okay, the first that. house was at 89th in Lexington, and right across from Gristides. Uh-huh. He lived there until the early 1970s. Um, and then he bought a mansion on 66th Street, between Park and Madison. There's a plaque on... The house, so anyone walking on the north side of the Who street. Who lives there now? Um, I'm not at liberty to say, but it is someone that has a certain private. Warholian connections. There you go, great. Yeah, and it's he's kept the house exactly as Andy um, had it, except for a new kitchen and things like that. But yeah. otherwise, it's just like walking into the house. It's amazing. But... Um, Andy, of course, was a social being. So he would throw lunch parties at the factory, especially down at 860 Broadway on the northwest corner of Union Square.
1: And when you say the factory, the factory was where?
2: The first factory was on 47th Street between 2nd and 3rd. Um, sadly, that building was torn down in over the by 1970s. The UN. Right over by the U.N. in Japan Society. And it's now a parking garage. Ooh. Um, and then where did it move to? Then it moved to the west side when? of Union Square. Um, well, the first move happened... In, let's see, late um, 69, I'm thinking, to the temporary space on the west side of Union Square. And then they moved to 680 Broadway, um, which um, served its purpose. Which is just
1: uh, into Soho.
2: It's the, north, the very northwest corner of Union Square. There's a Petco on the ground floor. Oh, and, 680
1: Broadway. Oh, so yeah. it's uh, the,
2: the, the northwest corner of Broadway and what? Well, it's Union Square, northwest corner of Union Square. So, Broadway and, what, 15th or 16th it's Street? Through really the
1: near coffee shop.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it um, was, was there until when? Until he died? No, no, no. Until um, 83 and eight into 84. Then Andy buys an old Con Ed building. Um, in the 50s. And he moves everything there. It's a massive building. And it only served its purpose for, what, four years or so until he dies. And that building is gone now as well. It was torn down. So the two middle factories still survive. The first and the last are gone.
1: What was love in his life?
2: Love for him was his family and also his partners. And he did have three long-term partners and this is all a public record oh absolutely sure. and who were they john giorno the american poet was his first really true boyfriend and they dated for a while um but they got along incredibly well and john was a huge positive influence on andy and appears in many of his early films and john is still with us he's today still doing his poetry and is an amazing lovely human being um then later on in the 1970s andy has a long-term relationship with jed johnson The interior designer, Jed and Jay Johnson were twins who moved to New York and um, got jobs as messengers and um, happened to make a delivery to the factory one day. And as soon as Andy saw them, um, realized that he was dealing with talent because they were incredibly good looking. Um, He took them both under his wing and ended up starting to date Jed not too horribly long. After that, and that relationship lasted well into the late 1970s. Um, They broke up. um, They had their dachshunds together, and there was a bit of a scuffle over who was getting the dogs. But they had a very loving, long-term relationship. You you mean a
1: literal scuffle?
2: A literal, not that way, but yeah. And then his last long-term boyfriend was John Gould, who was a Hollywood um, executive at Paramount. And they had a long-distance relationship between New York and L.A. and would often meet in Aspen to spend time together. And that was Andy's last boyfriend.
1: And it was in a time uh, well before there was any discussion about gay marriage and so forth. But something tells me that even if there were gay marriage, he wasn't the marrying kind. No. He was a solo act, wasn't he?
2: He really was in so many ways. And, you know, Andy towed the line right down the middle of those two poles. He wasn't radical and out with an agenda, nor was he closeted and hidden either, but he right. somehow was right in the middle of that. Interesting. He just didn't talk about it yeah. and was incredibly queer in his outward presentation to the world, and yet he didn't define his life by his sexuality. Right. That was a you know certainly a major part of him, but it wasn't what he led with. If he were alive today,
1: what would you ask him or what would you want to say to him
2: It's interesting to think about if you had access to this person, and I will say that um, there are occasional um, seances and um, people who try to talk to Andy in the afterlife and send messages to me through an artist, and it's a very creepy thing, and I never ask any questions because I don't really quite buy into that. It comes with your job. It does. Well, trust me, there's a lot of weirdness (laughs) that comes along with (laughs) my job in the Warhol world, which is fantastic, which is why I love it. But I think at the end of the day, I would be much more interested in the psychology of Andy Warhol and how he felt everything had played out. Was he happy with the way his life unfolded? I can pretty much guarantee you that he would say yes, but yet one never knows. So I would want to get into his, his career, you mean. His mind and how he viewed everything as it played out. Did he feel as though he mattered? We know today that he did in so many ways, and that's what our daily work at the museum is More than he about. dreamed, probably. And then, of course, I'd want to ask if he was happy with the museum.
1: If Andy Warhol were to visit the museum that Eric Shiner directs, he'd be one of over 100,000 people each year who tore the seven floors full of his work, which includes over 900 paintings, 4,000 photographs, 100 sculptures, and 60 feature films. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
0: Enjoy. Thanks. The order breakfast at the McDonald's drive-thru tell yourself you'll wait to eat it at work, but it smells way too good. So you eat it right there in the McDonald's parking lot meal. There's a meal for every morning at McDonald's.
3: Right now, get any size iced coffee for 99 cents until 11 a.m. and pair it with your favorite breakfast sandwich or one of our tasty bakery treats. Price and participation may vary.
0: McDonald's. I'm loving it. September
3: 10th, 2001. One block from the World Trade Center. Security cameras capture the last known images of Dr. Sneha and Philip shopping. At 7.18 p.m., she swipes a credit card, grabs her bags, and exits onto the street, into the rain. She never comes home. The next day, We just had a, a plane crash into of the World Trade Center. Chaos. Thousands disappear. But Sneha is different. There is not
2: a trace of her. Nothing.
3: Listen to Missing on 9-11 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.